5th century BCE was near the beginning of China's Warring States period, which would last for at least 150 to 200 years until the victory of the Qin Dynasty in 221 BCE. Prior to the Warring States period, which began in 475 BCE, there was another prolonged period of internal conflict. That that earlier period was known as the Spring and Autumn period, and that lasted from 771 BCE to 476 BCE. So in total, we can say that China was in a prolonged civil war for the better part of the first millennium BCE. Now, to appreciate the reasons for the internal conflicts, it helps to understand China's geography as it pertains to the ancient world. And if you look at a topographical map of China, you can see it is in many respects like a massive island in a way. So to the east, of course, we have China. Is, we can see that China is surrounded by the East China Sea, which has, by the way, much stronger winds and currents than the Mediterranean. To the north and the west, China is surrounded by the Gobi Desert and the Mongolian steppes and the Siberian steppes, and those are essentially deserts as well, grass deserts, you might say. And to the direct west, we of course, we hit uh, mountains, and to the south, we have thick jungle. So what this means, or what this meant, was that apart from India to the south, who they actually had very friendly relationships with, there weren't really any major external threats. So as a result, there wasn't really this this sense of shared adversity that would naturally coalesce the population against a common enemy. You can contrast this against the Greeks, uh, or the Persians for that matter, who saw each other as a threat, and whose populations, of course, would then be more easily cajoled to get along. But in China, there wasn't this, this common external enemy to, to, to cohere the, the population. And as a result, China at the time was mainly fighting with itself. However, even during these periods of conflict, Chinese people saw themselves as mainly having coming, come from a common origin. To give you an example of what I mean, People in China at the time believed that there was this mythical dynasty known as the Jia dynasty, which was ruled by these mythical sage kings. And and these sage kings essentially embodied all that is good and noble in the world. So let me give you an example of one of those sage kings. Um, And the example I want to tell you about is is Yu the Great. Now, Yu's father, Gun, was tasked with taming these recurring floods, which would have been common in the Yellow River Valley at the time. And Gun's attempts to control these floods, such as by building dams and dikes, while noble, and he he tried hard, uh, these dams and dikes were brittle and would often break down. So in legend, um, Gun's son Yu came to step up and help out uh, his father uh, in this task, and he he devised the system of canal building and water dredging that really could stand the test of time. And so people remember you, the great is, is great. You who controls the waters. Um, so this is a, this is a big part of the, the, the collective consciousness or the folk memory, if you will. And it's worth actually even comparing this mythology to the story of Noah's Ark, because in both stories you have citizens that are threatened by flooding. But in the Chinese mythology, it feels like the story of you, the great was written by a person with, a communitarian way of thinking, whereas Noah's Ark feels like it was written by someone with more of an individualistic mindset. And so in many ways, China's geography and history has led its culture to be very much focused on integration and harmony. Okay, so getting back to the 5th century BCE, 
you the great probably never lived um you know as i mentioned it's, it's really more mythology but there was a person in the fifth century um now you the great by the way he would have lived back in 3000 bce so we're 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 a little bit more recent we're talking about fifth century bce here so in fifth century bce there was somebody who was very much inspired by the sage kings like you and um this person was known as mo ji or simply as master mo and by the way i apologize to my chinese friends for my uh, less than perfect chinese pronunciation so we don't really know much about master mo's origins or even if mo was his real name some scholars have suggested that he got his name from the ink tattoos that many slaves or convicts were forced to wear on their face at the time. But we do know for sure that Master Mo started his career as a siege engineer. Uh, a siege engineer was typically a carpenter or other tradesperson who could quickly build or invent tools that would help win battles. And most often this would involve building mobile ladders that could be quickly moved into place so as to breach a city wall or some other kind of a barrier, like a moat or something like that. So having a really good siege engineer uh, on your team is a little bit like having a really good uh, baseball pitcher on a baseball team. So if you think about a, a really standout pitcher at the top of their game, they could pitch like a, like a no-hitter or a perfect game and, and literally win the entire game single-handedly. So it's the same idea with the this, this siege engineer. A really good siege engineer could be that decisive force that could completely flip a battle so in terms of siege engineers and there were a number of these people master mo was was often regarded as the best of the best and as you can imagine everyone loves a winner so he had a he he commanded a lot of respect and a lot of deference now while this might go to most people's heads uh, master mo was an intellectual at heart and he actually had read the teachings of confucius who may have actually been alive around the same time as Mo. But unlike his peers, Mo was not impressed by Confucius. Because in Confucian morality, the most important thing in life is one's own family, and therefore we should derive our values from our family's elders. So this family-oriented morality is known as Ren. Now, while Mo wasn't entirely opposed to Ren per se, he felt that compassion was misplaced and shouldn't just be restricted to one's own family, but to everyone. And more importantly, Mo believed that it would be possible to demonstrate this through an objective system of, of logic and uh, epistemology. Now, by the way, as a brief aside, I haven't really used the word epistemology yet, and now is as good a time as any to explain what it means. Epistemology is just a study of knowledge, and more specifically, justified knowledge. So it really just revolves around the central question of how do we know that our knowledge is justified and can be trusted? And this is, by the way, something also Aristotle was interested in, and he had his own opinions on the subject, but we'll come back at a, at a later point to talk about Aristotle. So getting back to Master Mo, Mo believed that true knowledge is uh, kinetic, and that means that it can only come from persons who can demonstrate their knowledge through practice and ability. So here's Master Mo explaining how this works. He, he writes, quote, Now the blind say what's bright is white and what's dark is black. Even the clear-sighted have no grounds for changing this. But collect white and black things together and make the blind select from among them and they cannot know. So as to my saying the blind don't know white and black, it's not by their naming, it's by their selecting, end quote. 
So this this approach to knowledge um, that Mo uh, really took in life or really believed in was was greatly inspired by Taoism, and Tao really just means the way. Uh, so really, Taoists really emphasize um, uh, the way over individual acts. So in other words, they they think that the the how is more important than the what. So to contrast it with that old saw, the ends don't justify the means. The Taoists would say the end, the means are the end. So building on this sort of this foundation of, of kind of a more kinetic form of knowledge, Mo wanted to put a stop to all the chaos and bring harmony to China. Of course, this is the, we're, we're still in the midst of this warring states period. I, I must remind you. So Mo believed that the chaos and disorder, which was known as Luan, stem from competing ideas of morality, and there, need, there needed to be an objective standard for all morality that all leaders could uphold. So he referred to this objective as I, which means universal love, and to a lesser extent, inclusive care. And to get to the goal of I, society would need to embrace Zhur, and that's spelled X-H-I, which means benevolence, benevolence. And so to avoid Luan, which really means unbenevolence. And as I mentioned earlier, it can also mean chaos depending on the context. So anyway, um, at some point, you know, through uh, working on this, Master Mo attracted a group of fellow siege engineers who were inspired by not only his great feats as a siege engineer, but but more importantly, uh, really curious about his ideas around I. And so Master Mo and his followers eventually sort of coalesced and formed a kind of a school known as Moism. Now, because the school was made up of siege engineers, they were able to form their own, you know, what, I, what I've called, been calling a liberty bubble. And essentially a protected space where they could freely debate without fear of getting shut down by the powerful, who, I shall remind you, still needed these guys to win battles for them as the Warring States period uh, was really still raging on. So they, you know, it, this is the thing that a lot of people don't realize about war. War can actually carve out a lot of liberty if you're sort of in the right place at the right time and you're greatly, greatly needed. You, you'd be, you can see examples of this all throughout history. So uh, over time, the, the group of Mohis developed a dialectic mode of argument similar to the Aristotle syllogism. And the method of argument was known as fa. Now, fa is a Chinese word for model. And so they saw basically that all our, they believed all arguments essentially should conform to a model. And they believed the model should work something like this. So in order to make an argument for jure, benevolence, or against luan, unbenevolence, the person making the case would structure their argument um, in three parts. So first, you have the root of the argument, which is similar to Aristotle's major proposition. Then you have the source of the argument. Don't worry, I'm going to give you an example in a second. Secondly, you have the source of the argument, which you can compare to Aristotle's minor proposition. And thirdly and finally, there is the use, which you can compare to Aristotle's conclusion. So in the example I found in Stanford's Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and I'll be quoting a lot actually from, from that um, online resource. Uh, in this example from that uh, Encyclopedia of Philosophy, 
the Mohists are arguing against fatalism. So, you know, fatalism or destiny or determinism, that's the idea that, you know, you have this kind of predestiny. So the Mohists were against fatalism. And this is how they argued against it. So their their first argument is they write, quote, they contend that one historical examples show that security and order depend on government policy, not fate. The ancient sage kings achieved peace and security under the same social conditions in which the tyrants brought turmoil and danger. So that's the first argument. The second argument, um, which is um, based on the... So I just gave you the first argument is called the root. The second argument is the source. And in this example, the source says, no one has ever actually seen or heard fate. So that's the second argument. And then the third uh, argument, the conclusion in Aristotle's world, or what the Mohists would call the use, goes like this. Fatalism has detrimental social consequences if people listen to fatalists, they will devote no effort to being virtuous or industrious, end quote. So as the, as the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy also points out, though, that this is not really an airtight argument since the Mohists obviously um, overlook the fact that the tyrant's failure and sage's success could have been predestined and that fate is not a physical object. And then some people are fated to be diligent and others not. So that said... Um, uh, we should we should forgive the Mohists since they, there weren't too many people practicing debate at the time. Uh, and and by the way, as a good example of what I mean by that, uh, the Mohists actually did enjoy debating the Confucians, especially in public. But it wasn't really a fair fight because the Confucians were more like poets who, I mean, Confucius in particular was really more of a poet who had a flair of aphorisms than an analytically minded philosopher like Master Mo. And this is in part why Master Mo and not Confucius is generally considered to be China's first philosopher. So some disciples of Mo- Mohism became increasingly fascinated with semantics, which is to say that the study of, um, of how we sort of label real world objects. Um, and so that's why they were known as um, the the people that were involved in the study of semantics were known to be along to the group of names. So they basically used the same word um, name as, as label. So people who like to sort of work with labels or names of things. But in an actual, uh, and that was really what how people described them in hindsight, mainly the Taoists described them uh, in that way. But at the time, most people knew the these people and again, these are sort of an offspring of the, the Mohists as the disputers. But to be clear, there wasn't really any group at all. These, these were just people who were in the Mohist school who were doing their own things and they were much more um, interested in um, argumentation and uh, uh, the use of semantics in, in argumentation, but also looking at the substance um, of those semantics and argumentation. So I want to talk, tell you more about these, these disputers now, because this is going to give you a clear picture of how logic um, and analytics and deductive reasoning played out. And the reason I want you to pay attention is that if you can, you get a, a sense of how these people thought and how people reacted to them, this gives you a sense of um, our, our, we can answer our, our earlier question about um, why um, you know analytics is very much a, a Western philosophy.
So the first person, um, the speeder in the school of names that we know of is Deng Ji, who is also known as China's first lawyer, which is actually an interesting parallel to the Greek sophists, uh, who I mentioned earlier. Um, the sophists are generally considered to be the, the first lawyers in the, in the Western legal tradition. Um, but I should say that another disputer, uh, Jun Zi, was, was very critical of Deng Ji and felt that he was wasting time on arguing over trivial matters. And although that Deng Ji's arguments were clever and incisive, they were ultimately useless and didn't yield any concrete results. Now, Deng Ji was the first person in China to establish a link between disputation and litigation. And he was so good at his job that he unfortunately established a reputation for himself as a political and legal gadfly. So we'll come back to Deng Ji in a moment. But now I want to tell you about another disputer, Yin Wen. Now, unlike Deng Ji, who was more of a sophist, Yin Wen believed in the power of argument as a way of getting to the truth and felt that through argument, we could rid ourselves of what he described as enclosures. I like that word. Now, what Yin, Yin, what Yin Wen meant by enclosures was that if we could home in our, in our most cherished beliefs and then allow those most cherished beliefs to be challenged, then through unfettered argument, we might be able to open our eyes to new possibilities. And this guy totally gets it. So to, to give you an example here about a story about Yin Wen, um, and I want to tell you a story about Yin Wen and a king also taken from Stanford's Encyclopedia of Philosophy. So I'm going to quote from you this story. Quote, Yin Wen asks whether the king would still appoint such a person, supposing that on being insulted in public, he did not fight. The king replies that to be insulted is a disgrace. He would not appoint a disgraced person. Yin Wen said, Though when insulted, he does not fight. He has not strayed from the four types of conduct. Not straying from the four types of conduct, that is not losing that by which he is an officer. If not losing that by which he is an officer... In the one case, the king would appoint him an official. In the other case, not. Then is what we earlier called an officer indeed an officer? The king had no response. Yin Wen said, Suppose there is a man here when governing his state. If people do wrong, he condemns them. If people do no, people do no wrong, he condemns them. If people commit a crime, he punishes, punishes them. If people commit no crime, he punishes them then would it be admissible for him to despise the people for being hard to govern? Not admissible. The king then says, not admissible. Yuen then, Yin Wen then says, the king's command says, one who kills another dies, one who injures another is maimed. The people fearing the king's command dare not fight even when deeply insulted. This is fulfilling the king's command. Yet the king says, not daring to fight when insulted, this is a disgrace. Now, to call it a disgrace, it's this that's called condemning it. In the one case, to appoint a person as an official, and the other not, this is deeming it a crime. This is the king punishing someone when he has committed no crime. The king had no response. So, to, so basically what, what Yin Wen is just proving here is that it's possible to be uh, possible and reasonable to be insulted and not fight back, and therefore we shouldn't be too quick to judge someone as having lost face simply because based on the superficial evidence. And what's most interesting about Yin Wen's style of argument is that he uses deductive reasoning to make his point. So here we can see some Chinese philosopher, philosophers here, in fact, you know, thinking 
deductively like Aristotle or or um, even Socrates and Plato before him. But that isn't really the most common mode of reasoning in China. And if you want to get a sense of what the most common form of reasoning in, in China was at the time, and I would say this is the most common form of reasoning uh, really everywhere. But in China in particular, there was a lot of focus around this form of reasoning, and that is through analogy. Um, and that was actually the mode of arguments that the Confucians would use to get their ideas across. So you can actually read a Confucian dialectic, and it's all through analogy. But it was the disputer Hui Shi who had a mastery over analogy, um, uh, reason by analogy, and he provides this wonderful justification of why he likes to use analogy so often. So again, I'm going to quote to you from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And Hui Shi writes, quote, A client said to the king of Liang, In talking about things, Hui Shi is fond of using analogies. If you don't let him use analogies, he won't be able to speak. The king said, Agreed. The next day, he saw Hui Shi and said, I wish that when you speak about things, you speak directly without using analogies. Hui Shi said, Suppose there's a man here who doesn't know what a Dan is. If he says, What are the features of a Dan like? And we answer saying, The features of a Dan are like a Dan. Then would that communicate it? The king said, It would not. Then if we instead answered, The features of a Dan are like a bow, but with a bamboo string, then would he know? The king said, it can be known. Hui Shi said, explanations are inherently a matter of using what a person knows to communicate what he doesn't know, thereby causing him to know it. Now, if you say no analogies, that's inadmissible. The king said, good. End quote. Hui Shi was also, wasn't just into analogies. He was actually also um, compared to Zeno the uh, pre-Socratic philosopher who was uh, taught by Parmenides and, and lived during the 5th century BCE and, and was very famous for his paradoxes, such as his motion paradoxes. So Zeno describes a situation, for example, where Achilles is able to move forward, but each step can only be half the distance of his last step. So this means that Achilles is always in motion, but he never really gets to his destination. So it's it's kind of a paradox. Um Similarly, Hui Shi developed a number number of paradoxes of his own, and reading through his paradoxes, I have to say they're they're more sophisticated and cryptic than Zeno's paradoxes, because they um, some of them combine both spatial and um, temporal concepts, both space and time. So one of my favorites is this one here that says, "Today go to Yui, but arrive yesterday." And what Hui Shi is saying is, if there's a place. Um, if I, I'm walking to a place on foot and I cross over to the border at Yui at the strike of midnight, then as my body crosses over the border and I'm lifting my feet, I'm technically arriving yesterday since the process of arriving is effectively straddling two days. Don't think about it too much. Um, but I'll come back to Ishii in a minute. But um, I just wanted to, again, say like his paradoxes, his thinking around logic at that level uh, was very sophisticated. Now, there's one uh, final disputer I want to tell you about. His name was Gong Sung Long. And in many ways, he was the opposite of uh, Yin Wen, who I was mentioning earlier, the person who was arguing against um, losing face. 
and who was serious about philosophy. Um, unlike uh, Yin Wen, Gongsung Long basically just saw the truth as something that you could just control like putty in your hands. And, and here's this uh, qu- a great quote from the Autumn Waters book, uh, 17 of the Taoist anthology, uh, Zhong Ji, that sums up Gansung, how Gansung Long may have seen himself. And I quote, When I was young, I studied the way of the former kings. When I grew up, I understood the practice of benevolence and righteousness. I united the same and different, separated hard from white, made so the not-so, and admissible the inadmissible. I confounded the wits of the hundred schools and exhausted the eloquence of countless speakers. I took myself to have reached the ultimate, end quote. And so you could say, based on a quote, quote like that, that Gongsung was, or at least saw himself, as the ultimate sophist, as, as good or if not better than any Greek sophist. So I'll give you an action argument that Gong Sung Long loved to put forward. And this was um, the argument he would make, which he would say, a white horse is not a, a horse. And so he, he would defend this argument by claiming that Confucius himself argued for the same thing. So again, I'm going to give you a quote, another quote from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, so you can see how Gong Sung Long pulled this off. So... Gansang Long, um, in this quote, uh, goes on to quote the annals of Lu Buai, in which, and that's basically a, a Confucian um, set of Confucian writings, in which the king of Chu loses his bow. So uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia goes on to write, the king's attendants asked to look for it, but the king said, quote, stop, the king of Chu lost a bow. A Chu person will find it. Why bother to look for it? End quote. Confucius heard of it and said, quote, The king of Chu is kind and right, but hasn't yet reached the ultimate. He should simply have said, A person lost a bow. A person will find it. That's all. Why must it be Chu? End quote. In this way, Confucius took Chu people to be different from what's called, quote, people. Now, to approve of Confucius taking Chu people to be different from what's called people, but disapprove of my taking a white horse to be different from what's called a horse is contradictory. And that's the end of the passage. So there you have it. Gong Sung Long was really good at playing games with words. Now, you might wonder how someone like Gong Sung Long would be tolerated in society with such brazen sophistry. And what you need to know is that he wasn't seen as some gadfly like Deng Ji. Instead, he was more of a royal entertainer, similar to a, a, like a jester or a fool in the European court. And as some of you might know, in European kingdoms, the jester was often the most intelligent person in the, in the king's court. So you could almost compare Gong Sung Li to the 18th century Scottish jester, Jamie Fleeman, who, while being described technically as the fool, he actually had a reputation for being very clever and, and having a rapier wit. So, so that's it for the um, uh, all the disputers I wanted to tell you about, all the people in the, the so-called school of names who are interested in, in debate, essentially semantics and logic. But whatever happened to these people? Well, before I give you the broader context, let me read to you a Taoist critique. And, and this really tells you how they were perceived um, in hindsight. And so this is a Taoist critique uh, about the disputers called The Equalizer. And it was written during the early Han Dynasty around 200 BCE. And it was maybe about, you know, maybe no more than 100 years after these people sort of 
disappeared. Quote, disputation, whether in defense of Confucian, Confucian ritual, Mohist inclusive care, the great one, or sophistical paradoxes, is beside the point. Issues addressed in disputation cannot and need not be settled in order to live well. In fact, they may even interfere with the conduct of good life. When we perform activities at which we genuinely excel, those whose performance engenders the deeply satisfying experience of feeling fully at home in the world, what guides us is not knowledge of fixed explicit standards of Xi Fi, nor identification with the One. It is a combination of skill and a kind of uncodifiable knack for adapting to the particular situation. End quote. The author then goes on to criticize Hui Shi, the great master of paradoxes, who I mentioned earlier I, I, has been compared to Zeno, and writes, quote, His know-how almost reached the pinnacle, so his reputation carried on until later years. It was only in that he was good at it, disputation, that he was different from other people. Because he was good at it, he desired to clarify it. It was not the sort of thing that can be clarified, yet he tried to clarify it. Thus, he spent his whole life in the obscurity of hard and white. End quote. So you can see right there that there's this kind of bemusement around this kind of logical, um, this form of logical reasoning. It's, it's kind of this odd party trick. Um, but it wasn't, but that's not to say that this stuff wouldn't have gone on and, and, and developed on its own if left unencumbered, because of course it was interesting. So what really re- ended it? And it wasn't the Taoists that brought down the disputers. Um, the problem itself in many ways you could say was peace. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the siege engineers got a lot of cover from being useful during the war. And then once the period of warring states ended, in part through the help of those siege engineers, the new emperor, who you could say was the winner, his name was uh, Qin Shi Huang, he also actually had similar ideas of uh, Master Mo and wanted to bring around harmony and integration. And he also actually was inspired by the Mohist concept of a fa, of a model. And, and he wanted to use this to, to bring about harmony. But instead of seeing the fa as a model for, for argument or a way of arguing to the right answer, he saw fa as being the model that simply just decides how all aspects of society should work. So beginning with his rule, we see the foundations of what we now call uh, Chinese legalism. And the idea of legalism is to apply the single model, the single fa, that will decide how every aspect of society works. And this is this this with this masterstroke, Qin Shi Huang was able to implement a nationwide bureaucracy that would come to be and is still a large extent of how China is governed. Um, in fact, it's really the the first major bureaucracy. The the Chinese were far out in front of the the Romans when it came to that. So while legalism is often seen through Western eyes as authoritarian and at times cruel, um, you know, there's, there was collective punishment, for example, was a, was a big aspect, and, and some of the punishments themselves were very cruel. Um, there are actually advantages that are worth pointing out. So, you know, apart from the fact that crime goes down to zero, um, the Kinshui Wang brought in a lot of... Uh, very good things. So he standardized units of measurement 
and he standardized Chinese writing itself. And, and not to digress, but th- this this is actually a big deal because Chinese script, which which is called Hanzi, it is to this day really the last remaining uh, non-phonetic, uh, what they call logographic language. So there's no alphabet in Chinese like there is in English. Even Japanese uses something called a syllabary, where every syllable is essentially represented by its own symbol. Um, by the way, if you try to do that in English, you'd have about 10,000 symbols. So that's why we just use an alphabet. Chinese, being the logographic language, means that most words have no prescribed pronunciation. So the advantage of this is that you can have all these different dialects, and those dialects can change over time, but the written language remains intelligible across the dialects and across time. So this is why it's possible for a Chinese reader to understand some writing from 2,000 years ago, but why, you know, the same reason why we can't really read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, because English has just changed so much over the years. So um, Qin Shi Huang's introduction of legalism, based on Master Mo's concepts of Fa, had many advantages for China. But you can also, if you know anything about legalism, it doesn't really take well to gadflies and, and critics. So if we remember our friend Deng Ji, that first disputer who was also a litigator, it turns out this guy really spooked the authorities who didn't like, like him unraveling all of their arguments all the time. And so it was with the rest of the philosophers in the School of Names, they, everyone, all of these people were effectively silenced. So I should say, though, this is not the last, this is not the end of logic in China. Um, there would still be more um, work with logic through the, uh, uh, during the up, up to and during the Tang Dynasty um, through uh, Chinese Buddhism, which was being imported from India. And um, so that, that we'll, we'll get back to that in a moment. But for now, I just want to, I just want to recap where we, where we're at, because we just unloaded quite a bit of information. So I started this this podcast by telling you how I was intrigued by an article about the Flynn effect and how it was suggested in the article that deductive reasoning was a form of intelligence and that it could be taught. Uh, the article then quotes a book uh, from the called The Foundations of Primitive Thinking, which includes a section describing a Russian sociologist who interviews an illiterate man from Central Asia who appears to struggle to solve a simple deductive puzzle involving white bears on snowy islands. And then I went on to tell you that I came to learn that deductive reasoning was not present in China, um, not until the Jesuit missionaries showed up in the 16th century and began to cross-pollinate European knowledge. And then I told you how that relates to, how I believe that relates to a study conducted at the University of British Columbia which shows that Korean students uh, indicate a preference for intuitive thinking over logical thinking and how European Canadians showed no preference. And then this has led me to believe that analytics is really just a subconscious philosophy that embraces a kind of an artificial world made up of words where truth is purely a binary concept. So the big, the big question this podcast is trying to answer is how did this philosophy emerge? Why do we think the way we think? And so, so far, to answer this question, we have explored the origins of, we've explored the origins of codified analytics and logic, first in Greece and now in China. But in order to really appreciate this, what I mean when I say that analytics is a subconscious Western philosophy, 
We need to turn our focus to India and understand how the Indians formulated logic through their own traditions.